Kansas City shooting of a black teenager who was at the wrong address. New York woman in the wrong driveway shot dead. Alabama birthday mass shooting, Nashville school mass shooting, Half Moon Bay mass shooting, Monterey Park Lunar New Year mass shooting, and many, many more. This episode is about America's guns, gun rights, and gun regulations. The Second Amendment says this. It says that a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. In the second part of this of the sentence, uh, the right of the people to keep and bear arms uh, pertains to the fact that in the 18th century, militia-eligible men were not only encouraged but required to keep at the ready functioning military-grade firearms along with the other accoutrements that you would need, you know, powder and shot, etc. So the Second Amendment was added to reassure the states that they would still have the power to raise and maintain their own state-based militias. Beginning in 1960, you began to see a sprinkling of articles appearing in law reviews arguing that the Second Amendment was about this personal right, either in addition to or instead of the militia view. Yes, the Heller decision was undoubtedly a landmark decision. It was controversial from that day to the present. And it was the first time that the Supreme Court had declared that the Second Amendment provided a personal or individual right of of an average person to have a gun for self-protection in the home. What changed then in the 1970s? Well, in 1977, uh, a dissident group within the NRA uh, felt that the existing leadership was too weak on gun rights. NRA's annual convention held in 1977, this more militant group took control of the organization, kicked out the old, more moderate leaders, and that was where they started on the road to become more political, more extremist, uh, less compromising, and that has accelerated from that day up until recent times. That it's an instance where a small but highly motivated political minority, I just mean numerical minority, uh, can win the day in politics over a large but fairly apathetic majority. Did you know that as we desperately and at times despondently debate gun regulations to hopefully stem this avalanche of gun violence, the important point that is often missed is that historically, America has been a nation of ample gun regulations. In fact, gun regulations are the default, not the exceptions, going all the way back to the Jamestown Settlement in 1619. Hey there, news peelers. Today is April 21, 2023, and this is Adele, your host at the History Behind News podcast. Aren't you tired of the repetitive news on TV and social media? They just go over the same dramatized developments all day long. Do you ever wonder what happened before our news? I mean, how do we get here? They say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So while others cover the news, I uncover its history. I call this peeling the history behind news, which we accomplish in weekly conversations with distinguished scholars who delve deep into history to give us their fascinating perspectives from our past. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee, or your favorite drink, or both, and let's get into it. Emmanuel Cleaver is a representative to the U.S. House from Missouri's 5th District. He was Kansas City's first black mayor from 1991 to 1999. And the only reason I mention him here is that I read his following pithy and profound statement in the New York Times after the Kansas City doorbell shooting of a black teenager. Quote, I am, I think, sufficiently frightened over how easily we're willing to shoot each other. End quote. Here are some numbers for you guys. According to the Wall Street Journal, when the Nashville school shooting happened, about three weeks ago, back in March, 89 other shootings had already happened in our schools. So, 
89 school shootings in less than three months. On Sunday, April 16, just after the Alabama birthday party shooting, Forbes magazine published this. In the first 106 days of this year, our country has experienced 163 mass shootings with four or more injuries or deaths. I mean, <laughs> how do we get here? No, seriously, I don't remember it being like this before. Back in the 1980s, or even the 90s. My distinguished guest, Dr. Robert Spetzer, takes us through the history of how we got here. How did an amendment about the militia that was pretty much an artifact of the 18th century, like the Third Amendment about quartering soldiers in our homes, was resurrected and reinterpreted? How did NRA morph from helping the government write gun regulations to vehemently opposing regulations? And how mass shootings increased after the assault weapons ban lapsed in 2004. And then there's Justice Scalia's landmark decision in the Heller case, which changed so much about gun rights and regulations. Dr. Spitzer is a professor at the Political Science Department of the State University of New York at Cortland, also known as SUNY Cortland. He's the author of 15 books, including several on gun control. His latest book, published just this year, is titled The Gun Dilemma, which we discuss in this episode. Dr. Spitzer has testified before Congress, participated in meetings at the White House, and his work has been cited by federal courts. To learn more about Dr. Spitzer and his extensive research and publications, you can visit his academic and personal homepages, the links for which are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So, stay with me as Dr. Spitzer and I peel the history behind this news. Dr. Spitzer, it's a pleasure to have you in our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Let's start our conversation with the text of the Second Amendment. It's, it's pretty short. Uh, can you please read or recite it for us? Yes. The Second Amendment says this. It says that a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And I will add that uh, Chief Justice Warren Burger, he was Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in the 1970s and 80s, said that the best way to understand that sentence is by beginning it with the word because, as in because a well-regulated militia is necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. I see, because it's not a word that's in there, but he's sort of adding that by adding this prefix, you can better understand it. I got it. Um, I'm just curious, why is this amendment the only one in our Bill of Rights that has a preamble? Is there a reason for that? Uh, first, I'm correct, right? No other amendment has a preamble. I guess that's right. Yeah. I, but I think far too much is made of those sorts of questions because mm -hmm. there is an assumption in contemporary politics and even in law that the Bill of Rights were somehow stamped from a single cookie cutter design, that there was this master plan, that the Second Amendment was number two for some pre-designated purpose, that the First <laughs> Amendment, free speech, free press, was first because it was most important. Um, and that the other amendments follow a basic pattern or design or format, and none of those things are true. The Bill of Rights came out of a very chaotic political process uh, in the first Congress, and Congress in 1789 operated not that differently from Congress of today, which is to say there were many hands, many voices. The original Bill of Rights contained 200 different proposals. 200, which, wow. Which they eventually boiled down to a smaller number and a smaller number. And in fact, 12 amendments went to the states for ratification and amendments number one and two were not ratified. So when they went out to the states- What were they? I'm now curious. Do you, do you... Okay, one of them had to do with the pay of members of Congress. That amendment actually was finally added in the early 1990s, after 200 years, <laughs> and the uh, other one had something to do with reapportionment, I think. I see, which was so done first, later. Yeah, so the First Amendment was actually the Third Amendment, 
The Second Amendment was the Fourth Amendment. But because one and two didn't make it, you had to renumber the list. And every amendment represented some different concern, constituency. It was the product of many hands in Congress, of bargaining, of compromise, and any time a committee writes a document or a law or an amendment for that matter, you're going to have all kinds of results that are not the kind of results you would expect if a single person sat down to write something. So to, to say that the, there's something starkly distinguishing about the fact that the Second Amendment has a preamble um, simply means that that's how they wrote it at the final version. I see. It doesn't. It doesn't distinguish it. It's a distinction without much difference. The, pre, the having a preamble. You mentioned ratification within states. Uh, originally, twelve amendments were sent, and ten were ratified. As I understand it, slightly different versions of the Second Amendment were adopted, were ratified. For example, in the landmark uh, Heller decision, which you and I will talk about later. Uh, I think they chose the Delaware decision, Justice Scalia. Is this true? And if so, is it significant? Well, no. Different versions of the Second Amendment were not adopted. The Bill of Rights were accepted as they were sent to the states. It was either an up or down vote on the amendments. They oh, were, were they sent as one slate? Like these are the 10, 10 or 12? Okay. That is correct. And, and as we just noted, of course, two of them were not approved, but the states did not have any ability to amend or alter them. They had to accept them up or down. And they did accept them ultimately um, to add the first 10 amendments to the Constitution. States have subsequently adopted their own Second Amendment type provisions, um, which vary widely in wording. And before the first Congress, that is, during the time of the ratification of the Constitution, which was sent to the states in 1787, was approved by the states in 1788 and into 1789, a number of states proposed to Congress, look, we think there should be Bill of Rights added to this document. And then you had a number of states proposing all kinds of things, including versions of what would come to resemble the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Oh, I see. I see. So let's go back to what you said earlier. Um, these different amendments initially started as 200 proposals, then it was whittled down to 12, then finally 10 were adopted. Represent different concerns of the states. Um, so why did our founders feel the need to pass this amendment, the Second Amendment? Well, to answer that question, you have to understand the politics of the late 1700s. And there was a huge uh, uh, controversy in the United States about this new proposed constitution with this new proposed government. Under mm -hmm. the old Articles of Confederation, the nation's first constitution, there was only one branch of Congress, uh, sorry, one branch of the national government, and that was Congress consisting of a single house. The new constitution, of course, created three branches of government, two houses of Congress, but most importantly, it gave major new powers to this national government. The Congress under the old Articles of Confederation, for example, did not have the ability to raise a standing army unless war was actually declared, which if you think about it for a minute, it's a terrible idea, especially in the 18th century. And many of the founders knew that very well. And so- Isn't it kind of late to, to raise an army when war is already happening? <laughs> that is exactly right. Precisely, yeah. especially because in the 18th century, it would have taken many months for the call to go out, for men to be brought into the military service, yeah. trained, equipped, etc. It was completely untenable. And that was one of the many problems with the old Articles of Confederation, that the Congress under the Articles simply had too few powers. Uh, and they didn't have an authoritative power to tax or to raise and fully control the military. Military power was squarely given to Congress first to create a standing army, including in time of peace. And secondly, Congress was given full power over militias. And indeed, we used militias heavily to fight the Revolutionary War and yeah. In the revolution. Um, and control over the militias had belonged exclusively to the states under the old Articles of Confederation. But now this power was given to Congress. It's in Article 1, uh, Section 8. 
And the states were frantic about this because they were losing full control over their militias. And they didn't trust the national government, many of them. There were interstate rivalries. There were actually instances where states lined up their opposing militias against each other along state lines, ready to fight over boundary disputes or other things. So now this power was being taken from them. So the Second Amendment was added to reassure the states that they would still have the power to raise and maintain their own state-based militias. And that was their reassurance that they would not be powerless with respect to state-based militias. I see you have the growth of this uh, powerful national government, which is completely new at the time to uh, Americans, to this new country. And basically the states want some sort of amendment to ensure that they can still have some sort of um, militia, which is a remnant, which they clearly remember from the War of Independence against Britain. I think I probably know the answer to this question, but I'll ask it anyway. Were there any states that initially opposed it? It seems like all would be for it, right? I, I There certainly, well, the amendments went to the states for ratification. There were debates over the amendments, and there were certainly, you know, state leaders who had objections to, you know, parts or some of the amendments added to the Constitution, but there was no systematic objection to it, no. And evidence of the fact that it was adopted. Um, and remember, two of the amendments were not adopted. So it's not as though the states felt they had simply no option. Uh, but there, were, there was no, no, there was no appreciable systematic opposition to the Second Amendment. I see. We'll be back after a short break to talk about gun history and landmark gun laws. We'll be right back. Back in January, we all witnessed the chaos in the U.S. House. It took a week and about 15 rounds of voting for Kevin McCarthy to become the Speaker. That week, we produced an episode about the history of the Republican Party and how the Republicans were actually the Progressive Party, not the Democrats, and how these two political parties switched positions and platforms in the 20th century. As evidence, Donald Trump hung a portrait of Andrew Jackson, a Democrat in the Oval Office, and not Lincoln. A Republican. The link to my conversation with our distinguished guest, Professor Joel Richard Paul, for this fascinating history in Season 3, Episode 1, is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Spitzer about the history of America's guns. Dr. Spitzer, our current gun controversies and crises are deeply rooted in our history, yet we don't seem to have a huge body of scholarship of this history. Um, first, I just want to make sure, do you agree with that assessment, the dearth of scholarship into the history? Well, there's certainly it's certainly a topic that has not received inordinate historical research, although among the research that has occurred, going back not just years but decades, uh, much of it I think has been missed or sidelines or given short shrift. That is, studies of America's military history, for example, uh, studies by and study by uh, frontier historians, for example. Um, so if you go back to older scholarship, you can find a lot of information that even now I think does not get its due. But it, like any area of history, it is certainly one that calls for more research. And it is also an area where substantially more information has become available in recent years, thanks to the digitization of old documents, including many old gun laws. So there's it's certainly an area where there's much more work to do. Um, I would agree with that. Do you, why do you think this is the case, that we don't have substantial research into this history? Well, I think because the history is 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 not all that complicated. I, I think one of the things that's not complicated. Interesting. No, okay. I, I think well, a, a case in point, the wording of the Second Amendment. Um, those uh, among those who felt and feel that the Second Amendment should pertain to an individual right, the 
idea that has been embraced by the Supreme Court since 2008 uh, are those who have argued that, well, no, the Second Amendment is really pretty complicated and it's unclear. And I, I, to me, it is more it has been a rhetorical dodge to find a way to introduce uncertainty and doubt about the historical meaning of the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms. And if you examine uh, historical documents and earlier research going back more than, let's say, 30 or 40 years, uh, there is no doubt to speak of or to refer to. Um, It's simply that the Second Amendment referenced concepts and entities that really don't exist or people in the modern era don't understand. I mean, the whole notion of malicious. Well, you know, we, we don't have malicious today in the way malicious existed back in the 1700s or 1800s. And the historical connection between the old style malicious and what today is the National Guard is one that is little, even now, little understood, even though it is a connection, historical connection. Uh, I, I think there has been a concerted effort to some degree to obfuscate in order to create doubt, to open the way for other interpretations of gun rights. I see. Do you think gun lobbies have anything to do with it, lobbying to cut off research into gun history? Or is that too much of sort of conspiracy theory and assumption on my part? Well, there undoubtedly has been a concerted effort to stifle uh, any government-funded research on oh. particular, uh, oh yeah, in, in particular on uh, the contemporary consequences of gun violence. That's where uh, research efforts and research funding were, were essentially halted by Congress beginning in 1995 or 96. Um, and that pretty much held true from that time up until Oh, about three years ago when Congress, for the first time in many years, reintroduced funding for gun violence research. So that's been the main area where government funded research has been has been stifled and more wow. funding has been halted. Um, in terms of more historical work, that it has not really been subject to the same kind of restrictions. Also, there's always private funding, obviously, to do the research. Not everything is based on government funding, but that's a very interesting point that you're making. You mentioned the Supreme Court, the seminal Supreme Court decision, 2008, which is the Heller decision by um, the late Justice Scalia. Why was that a pivotal decision? How did that change things? You see it cited everywhere. Yes, the Heller decision was undoubtedly a landmark decision. It was and controversial from that date to the present, and it was the first time that the Supreme Court had declared that the Second Amendment provided a personal or individual right of, of an average person to have a gun for self-protection in the home. No court had ever, no federal court had ever issued such a ruling or said that that was what the amendment meant. Well, let me just. Make sure I understand this. So the Heller decision sort of confirmed that the Second Amendment applies to individuals, that it's not just for militia. That is correct. Well, there were a handful of other Supreme Court cases and dozens of lower federal court cases, all of which embraced the militia-based view of the Second Amendment. And in terms of Supreme Court rulings, there are only a handful of them, but the two most important from earlier times were cases called Presser versus Illinois from 1886 and a case called U.S. versus Miller from 1939. Both of those cases analyzed and concluded that the Second Amendment pertained to citizen service in a government-organized and regulated militia. And the reason I should add that the Second Amendment makes reference uh, in the second part of of the sentence Uh, the right of the people to keep and bear arms uh, pertains to the fact that in the 18th century, militia eligible men were not only encouraged, but required by colonial laws, by state laws, and by federal law in the 18th century to keep at the ready functioning military grade firearms, along with the other accoutrements that you would need, powder and shot, etc. Because 
the government did not have the resources or the ability to arm a large military body. And so it was like what we would, in, we would today call an unfunded mandate. That is to say, citizens of militia age were required to keep these weapons. Those laws were widely ignored because, generally speaking, they did not include any enforcement mechanism, something that President Washington was unhappy about in the early 1790s when Congress passed a militia law in 1792. Um, So the notion that there was a burden on the individual to be prepared for military service was part of the understanding of what was going on in the 18th century. Now, by the time you get to the Civil War and after the Civil War, the government is now uh, um, to, to deal with a large-scale military emergency. Yes, yeah, provisioning soldiers. That's exactly right. And it's pulling them into the regular military force. It's not simply calling up the old-fashioned militias. Um, and the militia system existed in law and still exists today theoretically in federal law, but we don't defend ourselves or function through volunteer, part-time, ill-trained militiamen. We do it by putting men in in the military forces, giving them training, giving them full armaments, etc. And that's how America defends itself today, but that's not what existed back in the 18th century. Uh, this compels me to ask the following question. How did Justice Scalia work around this to come and say that, no, the Second Amendment does apply to the individual? Well, within the conservative legal community, a body of thought was cultivated and grown, mostly in law journals, to argue for this new way of thinking about the Second Amendment, this individual or personal right. Um, one of this, one study that I did many years ago was I... Uh, studied every law journal article from the late 1800s through the year 2000 that said anything about the Second Amendment. And if it did, how it viewed the Second Amendment, I came up with about, what was the number, perhaps 13 law review articles, all of which embraced the militia view up until 1960. Then beginning Wait, in- Wait, 19- only 13 embraced the militia view? Only 13 were written and published that offered any interpretation about the Second Amendment. Because it was not considered an important or relevant or timely or significant amendment to the Constitution. It was, it was not a sexy subject. That well, That's true. And it was also an artifact of the 18th century. It was an obsolete subject, very much like the Third Amendment, which has to do with the quartering of troops in people's homes yeah, yeah, in yeah, peacetime. Yeah. I mean, how much case law is there about that? Well, virtually nothing. Yeah. You don't see volumes being written about the Third Amendment. It just has not been an issue in 230 years. And the same was pretty much true of the Second Amendment until conservative theorists decided that, no, really, this amendment is bigger or should be bigger or should uh, provide a personal right or an individual right. And people would refer to the amendment in that way in kind of public discourse by right to bear arms, but that had nothing to do with how it was interpreted as a matter of law. And uh, it's, it's, beginning in 1960, you began to see a sprinkling of articles appearing in law reviews arguing that the Second Amendment was about this personal right, either in addition to or instead of the militia view. In the 1980s and 90s, the numbers of these articles exploded. And so by the time we get to the early 2000s, we have a Supreme Court uh, with five uh, very conservative justices, and they are now ready to say that based on their reading of history, and as you noted, Justice Scalia wrote the majority opinion, yeah, that based on history, no, the Second Amendment really is about this personal right. But oh. no, no federal court had ever so ruled in the past, and the Supreme Court certainly never did as well. So he essentially um, went against the stare decisis and overruled prior handful, a couple of them that you mentioned, Supreme Court decisions. Well, he didn't, he, I would just say he didn't actually overrule the Miller or Presser cases. He just kind of dismissed them and saying, well, they don't really have anything to tell us today. But functionally, yes, functionally, it did overrule earlier decisions. 
We'll be back after a short break to talk about gun rights 2.0. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Dr. Spitzer, I've heard the phrase gun rights 2.0. First, let's get into the meaning of this. What's the definition of this phrase? Well, the, the general definition of gun rights refers to a generally expansive, well, it, it depends on how you define it. Mm-hmm. Um, strictly speaking, under the traditional legal interpretation of the Second Amendment, gun rights would refer to the right of citizens to be prepared to serve in a government-organized and regulated militia. Um, but of course, that's not how it is defined in law today. Uh, in common use, traditionally, it is a term that references lawful uses of guns, like hunting and sporting, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. because people, Americans, speak very much about rights, the rights they have in many different realms. And when we talk about rights, often we, we are simply referring to things that are legal to do, but doesn't mean that they are a literal right protected by the Constitution. Um, but in, in, in modern parlance, the term gun rights has taken on a, a larger meaning, let's say. That is to say, referring to uh, the right that Americans believe that some Americans believe they have to own guns, to use them as they see fit, to not be encumbered by gun laws or face restrictions by gun laws, and uh, to have great discretion about their ownership and use of guns. Um, so where does the 2.0 come into this debate? Well, it, that is a reference. And here again, there are different iterations of kind of that idea. But the basic idea is gun rights 2.0 refers to a more expansive definition of these gun rights. I see. Uh, in, in fact, there are those who believe that anytime a human hand comes into contact with a firearm, that constitutes gun rights. And I I certainly don't agree with that. And most people don't either. Um, But included in gun rights 2.0 is certainly a more expressed political orientation uh, where people claim, for example, they have a constitutional right to own an assault weapon, or they have a right to own weapons as a way to deter or prevent the government from becoming tyrannical or as an expression of individual liberty and freedom. And there's kind of this bundle of political attitudes that have become more important to some Americans in recent years. In this context, let's talk about your latest book. It's titled The Gun Dilemma, and it was published earlier this year by Oxford University Press. So how does your book explain and examine gun rights 2.0? Well, my book, The Gun Dilemma, very much is oriented around contemporary gun controversies, but in the light of historical gun laws. And okay. I've spent, I've spent uh, really about 10 years studying old gun laws as they have become more readily available through the digitization of old state and federal gun laws. Uh, yeah, there aren't that many federal gun laws. Okay. Uh, and we kind of know what they are. But at the state level and local level, it turns out that gun ownership is as old as the country, of course, as which Americans know. But what is not so well known is that gun laws are as old as the country. And from the 1600s up until the start of the 20th century, uh, localities, states, and colonies before them enacted literally thousands of gun laws of every imaginable variety. Really? You never hear that. 
No, you don't. That's right. And that's huh. one of the reasons I wrote this book, <laughs> frankly, um, because I examined contemporary uh, uh, issues like uh, uh, the controversy over assault weapons, over large capacity magazines, uh, over gun silencers, over gun, what's called brandishing and display, and something called the Second Amendment Sanctuary Movement by looking at the legal roots of those contemporary controversies. So, for example, you know, there's a big dispute right now over whether large capacity ammunition magazines should be restricted. And they're generally defined as those that can hold more than 10 rounds. Um, should that happen? Should it not happen? About 15 states today have some kind of large capacity magazine restriction on the books. And of course, they're being challenged in the court right now under the 2022 Bruin decision. But what is not known is that at least 23 states in the 1920s enacted laws to restrict removable ammunition magazines that held over a certain number of rounds. <laughs> I discovered, wow, this is yeah, wild. I, I discovered that to, to my astonishment um, by looking at old gun laws. Now that's from the 1920s. Um, and there's lots of other sort of historical work that has informed my analysis of, of kind of all of these areas to make the point, well, two points. One is that the default in American history, unlike what most people think, is gun regulations, not the absence of gun regulations. Wow. Um, and in fact, you know, most people kind of think that gun laws in America really began in the 20th century, you know, maybe in the 1930s or the 1960s, and things certainly happened then. But, I mean, the very first gun law enacted in America was in 1619 by the uh, governing body of the James, the fledgling Jamestown colony, who convened for the first time in the summer of 1619. Plymouth, the, the Plymouth uh, uh, settlement had not even come to. Yeah, the, that was 1620, 1621. Yeah, exactly right. And. They convened to enact a series of laws to govern the country or the, the colony because it took months to, you know, uh, transport information across the Atlantic and they needed to be able to act on their own. One of the laws they enacted in the summer of 1619 was a law that said that no one, none of the settlers were to sell or give or trade or bargain uh, firearms with Indians, with Native Americans. And the penalty for doing that was death. So oh, wow. that was a gun law. Yeah. And there were gun laws, again, of every imaginable variety from then uh, through the, the next several centuries. Let's go back to the example that you share with us from the 1920s, um, which related to removable magazines uh, for uh, firearms that could sort of high capacity i i'm sort of you know 1920s i'm thinking of al capone and those machine guns so if these laws have been passed how many states did you say had passed such laws in the 1920s well the, the uh laws about uh removable ammunition magazines 23 yeah. at least 23 states so 23 states so it seems like we've done this before Oh, yes, we have. We, we've sort of banned assault weapons in the past. Are those laws still on the books? No. Over the decades, they were gradually repealed, I think mostly in the 1950s and 60s. And here again, there was no, there, there was extremely little controversy or attention paid to these things. Um, so by today, certainly those laws don't exist. But the operative question is, what happened 100 years ago or earlier for that matter? So you had those kinds of laws. You also had, in 1934, Congress passed the first significant national gun law, the National Firearms Act of 1934, which imposed restrictions on fully automatic weapons, excuse me, like the Tommy gun, on silencers, on sawed-off shotguns, on so-called gangster weapons, because in the 1920s, gangsters were using yeah. the Tommy gun, things like that in sensational crimes. And before that, at least 32 states enacted anti-machine gun laws. And among those states, at least eight of them, perhaps as many as 11 states, also enacted restrictions against semi-automatic 
weapons. And let me just clarify, fully automatic <laughs> weapon, like a Tommy gun, you depress the trigger and a continuous stream of bullets come out of the gun, right? Like the yeah. old gangsters. A semi-automatic weapon, like many guns today, fires one bullet with each pull of the trigger. As fast as you can wiggle the trigger, that's how fast the bullets are fired. So between 8 and 11 states, there's some ambiguity, enacted restrictions on semi-automatic weapons as well. So the contemporary debate about assault weapons, which began really in the late 1980s, early 90s, was echoed back in the 1920s. And I never knew about this. I don't think anybody else did until I started publishing uh, stuff about this and other people have too. <laughs> I'm, I'm chuckling because I'm just amazed. Let's go back to the 1920s and 1930s when all these laws were passed. Where was the NRA in all of this? Uh, the NRA was a part of these debates. It was not the uh, domineering political group that it came to be later on. And it was not um, the completely hardline group that it became later on. It, in fact, if you looked at the, look at the hearings in the spring of 1934 held on the 1934 federal law, the National Firearms Act, yeah. most of the 160 pages of testimony uh, had to do with back and forth between members of Congress and two NRA officials. Congress was very interested in their views because they represented a, a, a gun group and because they had gun expertise. They knew about the mechanics of, knew, knew about weapons. And the NRA was not happy with uh, more extensive gun laws, but as, as the NRA leader, leaders said publicly and repeatedly, they were fine with restrictions on handgun carrying, for example. They were fine with uh, restrictions on fully automatic weapons. There was more dispute about whether semi-automatic weapons should be restricted in uh, the federal, what became the federal law. Um, but the NRA actually helped write gun laws in the 1930s and uh, and into the 1970s. So they participated in, and, and you know, they were a more moderate group. They were still resistant to, you know, uh, various types of gun laws, but they also participated in writing gun laws, and things changed for them in the 1970s. What changed then in the 1970s? Well, in 1977, uh, a dissident group within the NRA uh, felt that the existing leadership was too weak on gun rights, was too interested in conservation or hunting or sporting activities related to guns, and not enough interested in the political side, they felt that the old leadership didn't defend gun rights strongly enough. And at the NRA's annual convention held in 1977, this more militant group took control of the organization, kicked out the old, more moderate leaders. And that was where they started on the road to become more political, more extremist, uh, less compromising, and that has accelerated from that day up until recent times. Yeah, yeah. Um, this dissident group that you're referring to, were they ideological or was this sort of a dissident group that was thinking in business sense, we can sell more guns? No, they were very much motivated by ideology. Now, th there may have been a business component to that as well, because the gun industry and the NRA have had a very close relationship for decades. And the NRA has kind of been the political front organization on behalf of gun manufacturers. Um, but it, the, 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 there was probably some commercial consideration back in the 1970s. But by and large, it was ideological. It was indeed an ideological conflict. Is this 1934 federal law still on the books? Yes, it is. So doesn't that regulate at least some some guns, some automatic weapons? It does. And in fact, people often say that gun laws don't work or, in, or are ineffective. But the 1934 law was remarkably effective at keeping fully automatic weapons out of the hands of criminals and, and uh, out of circulation in society. And one of the provisions of that law is if you want to own a fully automatic weapon. I mean, suppose you want to own a Tommy, Tommy gun, okay? 
You can. You can do it legally. But you have to go through the NFA procedures, which are extensive. What is you, the NFA? Uh, the National Firearms Act. I see. Requirements of that law. Yeah. Um, so you have to be fingerprinted. Uh, you have to re- you're registered with the federal government, which sees that you own or will own one of these weapons. You want to go an extensive background check. You pay a fee of two hundred dollars, which in 1934 was a lot of money. Yeah, the fee has not changed in you know 90 years. So two hundred dollars today uh, is a lot less money than it was in 1934, and it was in part designed to discourage the casual uh, acquisition of these kinds of so-called gangster weapons. And it's been remarkably effective in keeping fully automatic weapons out of the wrong hands um, and out of general circulation. You say it's been remarkably effective, but we have all this gun violence with automatic and semi-automatic weapons. So it doesn't sound so effective to me, a layperson discussing this with you. Well, the gun violence we see is not fully automatic weapons with the rarest exceptions. The assault weapons that have been the focus of so much attention, those that circulate in society are semi-automatic weapons. But you can do an enormous amount of damage with a semi-automatic weapon, especially if it can receive a large capacity magazine holding 30 rounds or 60 rounds or 100 rounds. And frankly, even the military, because these weapons were developed for military use, (laughs) even the military recognizes that on the battlefield, having a, a, let's say, an AR-15 type of weapon, the military version can fire fully automatically or semi-automatically. But even on the battlefield, it's more useful firing fully automatic, sorry, firing semi-automatically than fully automatically, because you go through too many rounds firing fully automatically, and you, uh, you, you lose your on target aim in the process because of the rapidity of the bullets leaving the barrel. So you can do enormous damage with a semi-automatic weapon of the AK style or AR-15 style. And that's what we've been seeing in modern times. Let's talk about gun violence for a second. Let's go back to the 80s and 90s when you know I became an adult. Maybe I wasn't paying attention to the news, I, but I just don't recall hearing about gun violence so often in our news. Is this your recollection too? I would say not exactly, because we did witness a rise in crime, including gun crime, Uh beginning in the 1960s, continuing through the 70s, 80s, and peaking in the early 1990s. But was it like mass shooting like we had this weekend in Alabama, a birthday party? No, no. Okay. Did not see. I mean, if you examine American history, you can find isolated incidents of mass killings, but very few of them. I mean, the the first one that is identified as as being modern was uh, a man on the campus of the University of Texas at Austin who climbed to the top of uh, the tower on that campus with a rifle, shot and killed something like a dozen or 15 people. That was a mass shooting. But that was a very much isolated incident. It didn't spark, you know, a lot of copycat cases. Um, but what you did see was a rise in gun violence during the 70s, 80s. And in the 1980s, you saw a transition in that gun violence when criminals began to acquire, instead of having cheap handgun, cheap, small caliber, six shot five-shot handguns, they started to acquire and use semi-automatic pistols that could hold 15 rounds, 17 rounds or more. And then you began to see assault weapons at the end of the 1980s. There was a mass shooting in 1989 at an elementary school in Stockton, California, where something like a dozen school children were shot and killed by this deranged man. And that was the, the single incident most notably, that set off the contemporary effort to restrict assault weapons. But the whole phenomena of mass shootings where, you know, you're just angry at the world today and you go and kill a dozen people in a school, in a birthday party, whatever, at a concert in Vegas, that's more recent, 15, 20 years. What happened? Yeah, what happened was that we began, after the assault weapons ban, 
lapsed. The Federal Assault Weapons Ban was enacted by Congress in 1994. It was on the books for 10 years. The law lapsed in the year 2004 because that's how the law was written with this sunset provision. After that law lapsed, you began to see a dramatic increase in circulation of assault weapons in society. It was now legal to buy newly manufactured assault weapons. And you began also then to see a rise in mass shootings. And that rise has continued for just about the last 20 years. Now, it's important to point out one other thing, which is mass shootings receive an enormous amount of attention for understandable reasons. But the vast majority of gun violence is committed with handguns, not with assault weapons. Although assault weapons are widely used in mass shootings, um, and mass shootings, as terrible as they are, account for about 1% of all gun homicides per year. The other uh, gun violence is in criminal sittings, maybe gang violence or, you know, shootouts between police and, and, and criminals or between criminals, right? That's the major difference. That is certainly true. And that's where you're much more likely to see handguns being used. Yeah. Yeah. In, in the minute we have left of this segment, I'm going to ask you a question that I have to admit it's naive, but I got to ask it. You know, you're going through the history. We've already had gun, gun laws really relevant to current technology back in the 1920s and again, 1930s. And you're telling me that gun laws in our in our country or the prequel to our country goes back all the way to 1619 in Jamestown. And you just, the way you explain is that mass shooting sort of spiked after assault weapons uh, law lapsed. This all sounds very logical, almost too logical. What's the counter argument to this? Let's say I just landed here from Mars and I listened to you. I'm totally convinced. Yeah, we should have more gun laws. So what's the counter to this, Dr. Spitzer? Well, the counter to what? The absence of gun laws? If you sit before Congress, and I know you, you've, you've testified before Congress before, anyone listening to you would be convinced that, yeah, we should have more gun laws. What's the counter to that? Well, the reason we don't... Politics? Is that it? Well, it, it is essentially politics, sure. It's interest group politics, a classic example. And the, the easiest way to summarize it is by saying that it's an instance where a small but highly motivated political minority, I just mean numerical minority, <clears throat> can win the day in politics over a large but fairly apathetic majority. Most Americans support stronger gun laws and have, since the advent of modern public opinion polling, when questions were first asked about gun control back in the 1930s. So we have gun public opinion data going back uh, almost 90 years showing consistent public support for stronger gun laws. But the gun issue is not a top priority for most Americans. For, the, for those who support gun rights or who believe in a who believe that gun laws are bad or wrong, they feel very strongly about the issue. It's their number one concern. They'll vote based on the issue. They'll go to a meeting. They'll write a letter. They'll contribute money. They'll do all the things in American politics that most Americans don't on a day-to-day -day basis. And that is an exemplar of how interest group politics can work, how a, a, a small but highly motivated interest can advance its point of view over an opposing point of view when that opposing point of view doesn't have a similarly intense uh, counterbalance or doesn't provide that counterbalance. Now, you might argue that in recent years, things have started to shift in that respect. Yeah, it seems like it would be a priority. Yeah. And I think, I think things are slowly changing. But the final element to this is the fact that we live in a very polarized political moment. Um, where it's very difficult to enact any major legislation on any subject. Sometimes the federal government responds, but usually it doesn't. Um, and so in this environment, especially with so many other pressing issues and problems, the economy and foreign policy and terrorism and many, many other concerns, um, the gun issue often gets pushed to the side. Although I think you could argue that perhaps it's becoming more salient to more Americans. Yeah. 
Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Dr. Spitzer as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Dr. Spitzer, you are a member of the NRA and the Brady Center. How does this work? How do you reconcile these memberships? Well, it works uh, very simply. I send in membership dues and that makes me a member. So I am a card-carrying member of the NRA and have been for many years and also of the the Brady Organization, which is a pro-gun safety group. Yeah. I, I did it for two reasons. One, because it allows me to see the operation of these groups from the ground level, from the point of view of an average member, you know, the literature that they send you, the magazines, the letters, etc. And that's interesting and useful to me because I've been studying the politics yeah. control for uh, for decades. Um, and secondly, uh, it confuses my students. And they, <laughs> they scratch their head in the same way perhaps that you did. Why would you, you know, how could you be a member of these two opposing organizations. So it's a way to get at the subject matter of this that is uh, interesting for classroom conversations. I see. And I asked this from you during the break, so I'll ask it again for our audience. Do you own a gun? I do not, but I do have a concealed carry pistol permit license from the state of New York. <laughs> what is that for? Well, it, it's it'll. I applied for and received the permit because I wanted to go through the process to learn more about it, uh, to understand it from the inside, what's it like. And this was, I got the permit before the 2022 Supreme Court decision that ruled against parts of the New York State permit law, um, and to kind of see, you know, what it was like. And I found it very interesting. I, I wrote about it. The process was, it was it arduous or easy? Oh, it, it was It was not difficult, but it, it was not a one-day or one-week affair. You have to apply fill out an application. You have to submit the names of four character references. You have to be fingerprinted. Um, I had an interview with the local police. They conducted an extensive background check and it it takes, uh, well, this was some years ago. It took uh, a couple of months for this all to occur. You can't get a license in a day or two, or you couldn't in New York state and in some other states too, but that's a good thing. Well, I, I think it is a good thing simply because it allows the government the chance to make sure that, uh, you know, I'm not a bad person. I'm not bent on doing bad things with with a gun. And uh, there's lots of research that shows that a a real and more extensive background check in the context of a permitting process is very effective at reducing gun crime and gun violence. So when you have a license for concealed carry, handgun. Is is there regional restrictions on that within the state? Uh, you know, let's say you can have your concealed uh, weapon in upstate New York, or can you literally walk in Fifth Avenue in Manhattan with that gun? In New York State, uh, the answer was no, uh, because the, uh, the five boroughs of New York City operated under a stricter gun licensing uh, standard than the rest of the state. Um, and that's because New York City is the largest state, the largest city in the country. And there are other, you know, there are many other areas of law where where New York City has a different set of standards than uh, the rest of New York State. Um, and that's not unusual or new in the case of New York State. And the same can be said of other states as well. One of the questions the Supreme Court raised about the New York State law was precisely the fact that there were variations in the standards for getting a pistol permit in New York state between counties or among counties. And so that's a fair question to examine. Is that just New York or do other states also have variations within within the state? Other states have in the past. Uh, state laws have changed recently, so I, I can't speak authoritatively yeah. about other states. Though. But that kind of makes sense. I mean, being in upstate New York, in a small town or out in the wilderness, carrying a concealed weapon is a lot different than being in the elevator of this Empire State Building with 10 other people, right? 
Well, that's right. And here's another instance where historical gun laws are revealing, because you found exactly the same pattern in old gun laws. That is, you would find gun law restrictions pertaining to cities that did not pertain to the colonies or the states around them. Interesting. And, yeah. So that's kind of exactly what we're talking about here. That is correct. And you found laws like that, especially in the 1800s, as the cities really began to grow and industrialization takes hold and people are moving to the cities. And you find the cities enacting their own tougher laws because they were large, growing, populated, densely populated cities. Yeah. Let's talk about another book you've authored. It's titled Guns Across America, Reconciling Gun Rules and Rights. After, after everything we've talked about here and everything that's happened, you know, Nashville, Tennessee, a couple of weeks ago, the birthday party massacre, mass shooting in Alabama and many others. Can this be reconciled? Well, I think the answer, at least in the abstract, is yes. As our own history shows, in fact, the, the, the very argument I made in my book, The Gun Dilemma, was precisely that gun ownership is as old as America that gun laws are as old as America, and that in the first 300 years of our history, there was no fundamental collision between those two. Today, we think of gun laws and gun rights as a zero-sum game. Yeah, right? yeah. A win for one side is a loss for the other side. But that is not how the politics of guns played out in the first 300 years of our history, by and large. That is to say, gun rights were perfectly compatible with gun ownership, gun carrying, gun use. And that's because it was generally accepted that you could, you know, you could have guns, um, but also that there needed to be laws to restrict you know, various kinds of uh, behaviors related to guns, like hunting laws, like uh, concealed carry laws, like uh, lots of other things that um, were pretty much taken for granted in the 1700s or 1800s, but that in the context of today are viewed as much more contentious and much more zero-sum gain, where a gain for one side is viewed as a loss yeah. for the other. Dr. Spitzer, for the last hour, you and I have been talking about gun history, you know, its uses, its rules, its, its laws. You've testified before Congress. Have you ever talked about this? Well, sure. I, I've given many talks over the years to all kinds of groups in academic settings and community groups. I write, uh, I've written quite a few op-eds, articles for newspapers, etc. On, on many of these themes. So during these testimonies, what has been the pushback? What are, are there any key questions that, let's say, conservatives have keyed on? Is there a focal point that they go after when they ask you questions? Well, I wouldn't say there's any one focal point, because once you get past the initial, I mean, among gun rights people, and I I go to gun shows, I always had gun owners and NRA members in my classes, you know, so mm -hmm. this is very much a part of the debate. And it's important to talk to people on all sides of this issue. And I find that once you get back, get past the initial uh, hostility, toward, you know, the, the, the phrase gun control yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and talk more about, well, you know, if you were, so if I'm talking to a gun owner and, you know, if you were in charge, what do you think the law should say? And what I often find is that gun owners actually have very strict attitudes about who ought to be able to own guns and under what circumstances, partly because gun owners, realize, yeah, they realize that when people do bad things with guns, it reflects badly on all gun owners. And it's in the vested interest of gun owners that they behave responsibility, that they know what they're doing, that they learn and maintain uh, the skills you need to own a gun because guns are dangerous. Um, and that people who don't have the proper skills, training, et cetera, uh, are, are prone to making terrible mistakes that can cost people uh, their lives. So gun owners actually, in many respects, have a tougher attitude about what the law should be than other people. Yet they're not able to put pressure on the NRA to go along with it. Well, it's important to remember that the NRA membership these days is probably at most 4 million members, and there are around 
70 million gun owners in America. So the vast majority of gun owners are not members of the NRA. Um, and indeed, I've certainly talked to gun people over the years who uh, left their membership or didn't renew their membership to the NRA because they were disgusted with the NRA's extremist political rhetoric and anti-government rhetoric and things like that. Dr. Spitzer, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you so much, Dr. Spitzer. You're most welcome. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News, we peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news. <music>